people have all sorts of different ideas as I've been in conversations with different people um, about what, what the church is and what the church is all about. Um, uh, many of them I've discovered have these uh, false, um, distorted images. Um, let me give you a, a couple of, of the distorted images that I have uh, heard from different people. Some think of a church as like a, like a gas station. For them, the church is a place where you go and you fill up your spiritual tank when you're running low. Get a good sermon in you, you know, and that will maybe carry you through the next week or or maybe month. (laughs) Others see the church kind of like a a movie theater. Uh, It's a place that offers, you know, entertainment. Go for an hour of escape, hopefully, and... Comfortable seats. Now, I know that might not be your case, but, uh, you know, hopefully in, in some place where you get comfortable, leave your problems at the door, they consider, and, and come out smiling and feeling better than when you, when you went in. A third picture that many have of the church, I think, these days is that it's like a drugstore. Um, a church is a place where you can go and fill the prescription that will deal with your pain. For many, the, the, the church is, you know, therapeutic. A fourth picture I think some have of the church is that the church is a big box retail, retail store. Um, uh, a place that offers, you know, the best products in a clean and, and safe environment for you and your family. A church offers, you know, a great service at a, at a low price, <laughs> All in one stop. For many people, the church is a producer of just, you know, good, helpful, healthy programs for children and young people. Now listen, I, I, I want to suggest to you that you won't find any of those pictures, images uh, of the church, any of those in the Bible. All of them are distortions. Um, And they all have one thing in common, if you listen to those closely. They're all about me. (laughs) Fill me up and entertain me and take away my pain and and give me some some programs that my family and I are looking for. Um, It's pure consumerism, right? Now, I got to tell you, that isn't too surprising. I mean, this mindset, it's pervasive in our culture. I don't know about you, but, you know, I don't find any particular loyalty. I don't have any particular loyalty to a particular gas station or to a, a movie theater or a drugstore or a big box retailer. No, I, what I do is I move around looking for uh, what is offering the best deal at the time, right? Christians who think about church in those ways, I got to tell you, they find it hard to settle in, and when they do... They miss so much as a result. In contrast, the New Testament, the scriptures, refer to the church in a lot of different ways. Refers to the church as the body of Christ. Refers to the church as a priesthood of believers. Refers to the church as the house of God. But I think one of the best pictures that we find of the church in the New Testament is that we are the family of God. Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 19, Now you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens 
along with all of God's holy people, you are members of God's family. See, the church is not some club. It's not some, some specific club to belong to, offering trial memberships, you know? No, we're a community here of brothers and sisters, an eternal community with, with cosmic relationships, and that determines how we are to treat one another. And this radical relationship um, comes through, I think, loud and clear in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians morning. Because throughout this letter, you'll find that Paul there is talking to them as, in his role as their spiritual father. After all, he was the one that planted the church and, and he discipled many of these new believers and he had uh, come alongside them and he had encouraged them in their faith and also has their spiritual father. <laughs> he also had different opportunities to correct them. Now, let me catch you up a little bit with where we're at, a little bit of the uh, uh, update on, on what's going on, the occasion for this letter. Um, uh, uh, so in 2 Corinthians, what we find is um, after Paul had planted the church, probably a year or, uh, or so after he had left that church, he'd been there for 18 months, he left the church to go plant other churches. And um, um, as he was out planting other churches, he heard stories. He heard that there was some trouble back in this church in Corinth. So Paul decides to stop by for an unscheduled visit. When he gets there, to his surprise, not only had these believers, um, you know, these new believers that he had discipled, not only had they bought into some false teaching, but someone, apparently, uh, evidently a, a person of, of, of strong influence there in that church, opposed Paul face to face. This offender, in fact, challenged Paul's authority. He accused Paul of being dishonest and being double-minded and being a person that lacked in courage. And to Paul's shock, as he was getting this attack, others in that church, the majority of others in that church just sat by passively and, and, and did nothing. And Paul's heart, as their spiritual father, was broken. And instead of reacting out of anger, <laughs> Paul thought he needed to just put a, punch the pause button. And so he turned around and he went back to Ephesus. And when he got back to Ephesus, Paul then wrote a letter of correction to this whole church, what's called a severe letter, we call it that. It was a call for their repentance, which he refers to back, in fact, in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish out of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's a spiritual father writing to a church and trying to correct them. In response to receiving this strongly worded letter then, um, 
it appears that the majority of these Corinthian believers, that they repented. They took responsibility for their action or lack of action. But not so, evidently, for this so-called leader. Um, so this majority then disciplined him. Probably what they end up doing was excluding him from their fellowship. Evidently, that punishment had its desired effect because the offender uh, repented and he was ready to rejoin the congregation. All of this is background information we need to know to understand what's going on here. Um, so, what's the church to do now? Well, Paul in our passage, I got to tell you, tells us that the church, what they need to do is they need uh, to do a reboot. You guys are familiar with that term, reboot, right? Um, you know, you ever find yourself stuck, um, you know, trying to troubleshoot a problem maybe on your computers or on your smartphone? Um, in fact, this past week, um, I have in our home, this past week in our home, our internet went down. And uh, first I thought I might have to call the geek squad, uh, you know, come and, and do some troubleshooting. Uh, for our internet to figure out the problem. Um, of course, that would have cost me some time and certainly would have cost me some money. Uh, so instead, I did what people tell you to do. The first thing you should do is, is you should, uh, uh, when you get technical issues, you, you should try a simple reboot, um, which means that you turn off your computer or turn off your smartphone, which allows the devices then to start with a clean slate. So in my case, what I did was I went and unplugged the internet, <laughs> and I did a reboot. Turned it back on, and voila, <laughs> uh, the internet was back on. Everything was working just like new. Paul tells this church in Corinth then, he says, hey, as the family of God, what you need to do is you need to do a reboot towards this repentant sinner. They need to forgive him. They need to bring him back into the family. So we say, well, how does that happen? What are the principles that we need to keep in mind that as a family of God here at First Tree will help us when we have to deal with spiritual restoration? And what might we learn personally if um, and when we need a reboot in our own spiritual lives. Look with me at our passage uh, this morning here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, let's start with the first principle that Paul talks about. It's the fact that sin spreads. I want you to notice in verse 5 how far sin reaches. Look with me, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. <laughs> Um, notice the pain here that was caused by the sin of this one man was not limited to Paul. No, the pain was felt by the whole church, to all of you. All of them had, had suffered. That's the effect of sin in the church. In his first letter, if you remember back in his first letter to this church of Corinth, Paul uses an illustration of yeast. Um, in that letter, he was addressing uh, some sexual immorality that was taking place in the church. 
And he warns them, he warns the whole church. He says, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? He compares sin to, to yeast, where just a little bit of it affects the whole batch. <laughs> like yeast, yes, like yeast, it affects the whole church. Let me use another illustration that um, maybe touches home for others of us these days that aren't, uh, you know, used to being baking in the, in, in the kitchen. Once in a while, I'll go to a restaurant, and when I'm out to a restaurant, I'll order something, a sandwich or something that, unknown to me, has some very strong, powerful jalapeno uh, peppers on it um, or in it. Um, but I, I got to tell you, true confessions, it never takes me very long to discover that there's jalapenos in, in, that, uh, in that recipe or in that uh, item. In my first bite, I can tell. <laughs> Even if I don't bite into the, the pepper itself, I mean, the heat begins to well up in my mouth and my mouth begins to burn and a little bit of jalapeno pepper wrecks the whole meal. And on that meal, usually a meal after that and then maybe a meal after that too. Uh, um, likewise, sin spreads, that's what Paul's saying. A little bit of sin wrecks the lives, not only of the sinner, but also affects and oftentimes wrecks the lives of others. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but Pastor, my, my sin's a private matter. Yes, your sin might be private, but sin has a communal impact. It impacts others, and it can, fact, it, it can impact the entire community of God. Back in Joshua 7, remember the story? There's a story about one man's sin. The man's name is Achan. Remember the story? The Israelites had just celebrated a powerful, amazing victory over Jericho. You know, they're coming into the, the promised land, and they, they get to Jericho, and they don't know what in the world they're going to do, but they discover God's on their side, and they, they, they do this dance, this parade around Jericho, and sure enough, the walls come tumbling down. <laughs> amazing, amazing. But in the midst of the celebration of their victory, Achan takes some devoted... Items, things like uh, some silver and gold and some other uh, items he takes and he hides them. He buries them in his tent. So then they come to the next town. Next town, Ai, which, you know, compared to Jericho, should have been a complete pushover uh, for them. Um, uh, But instead, the Israelites are soundly defeated. And the Bible says the hearts of the Israelites melted and became like water. 36 men lost their lives because of Achan's private sin. So, listen, we might think that uh, we sin privately and secretly, but the reality is that our sin has implications. My sin affects my marriage. It affects my family. It affects my friends. It affects my, my church. I mean, think about it. We know this, don't we? I mean, we've all seen the effects of sin. Think about adultery. Adultery just, doesn't just affect the husband and wife. 
Oh, it affects the children. It affects relationships that they have at work. It, it affects the relationships that they have with friends and relationships they have at the church. How about alcohol or substance abuse? Everyone around that person pays the price, right? Their family, their friends. It's the reason why there's such things as support groups for spouses and for, for children of alcoholics or, 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 or drug abusers. I mean, think about the innocent people that are driving along on the road whose lives are about to be changed because of a DWI that they run into, literally. I mean, the, the, the sin affects more than just, just themselves. Okay, how about the sin of gossip? I mean, gossip <laughs> tears apart communities and, and turns people against one another. It rips apart friendships and, and relationships. It destroys churches and, and small groups. My sin, your sin, has far-reaching implications beyond just us, individuals. Paul knew that. And so he said, this sin has not only caused me pain, but it's caused all of you pain as well. Because the reach of sin, I want you to notice what our response to sin ought to be. This is the second principle. That is, confrontation, when done correctly, demonstrates love. Look with me at verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And Paul here is writing about something that has already taken place. Understand this, okay? He had pointed out the man's continued uh, continual flagrant uh, sin, and, and, and the church responded. They, they took responsibility for it, and they punished then the offender. They didn't ignore it. They didn't close their eyes to it. They didn't sweep it all underneath the carpet. Um, instead, they confronted the sin, and they took responsibility for the individual. Um, do you know why they did that? <laughs> it was because they loved him. See, confrontation done correctly is one of the great demonstrations of love. I mean, just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that I had been um, downstairs and I'd been enjoying some fellowship time and I'd grab one of those good chocolate donuts and I ate one of those donuts and I just, a big dollop of chocolate was just left on my chin. And I'll just imagine, eh, nobody pointed out to me. I got up here in the platform and this big piece of chocolate just sticking here on that chin. I, I mean, what would you do? Will you say nothing thinking, you know, <laughs> ah, it's not my place to say anything. Ah, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to point out that big glob of chocolate on his chin. <laughs> Or will you slide up to me before the, uh, I get up here to, to, to preach and say, hey, hey psst, Joel, <laughs> you got a big piece of chocolate I are sticking on your chin? I mean, which of the two options is most loving? Of course, the most loving thing to do is to courageously and humbly say something to me. That's the purpose of church discipline. 
Of course, if you're, uh, go back to the beginning, if, you, if your vision for the church is that the church is just a club or it's a, it's a movie theater, then the very mention of the church discipline, I mean, that <laughs> makes you uneasy. It begins to make you squirm a bit, right? But listen, if your picture of the church is that we are God's family and I'm your brother in Christ and we're an eternal community with cosmic relationships, then the most loving things that we can do for each other is that when we see sin in one another's life, is to say, you know what? Brother, sister, there's a problem I want to share with you. It's because I love you. It's because I'm your brother or sister in Christ. I want to humbly tell you that there's a problem here. The Bible calls that church discipline. Now, I know this whole idea of, of, of church discipline doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound <laughs> very gracious. Um, I mean, why would God instruct us to do such a thing in the church? Well, because of the purpose of church discipline. And this is a third principle I think we find, the overriding principle we find in this passage that Paul is camping out on, and that is the goal of church discipline is restoration. It's the restoration of the sinner. Now, let me make a quick side note here because I want you to understand the effectiveness of any church discipline is dependent upon the heart of the sinner. When you and I uh, are confronted about sin in our lives, my heart, your heart, will either be humbled or hardened. If you point out sin in my life, in that moment, my heart will either be humbled or hardened. A hardened heart turns defensive and says, how dare you uh, say that to me? Uh, Tell me what I can do or cannot do. What I do in my life, that's my problem. That's my decision. Who do you think you are anyway? A hardened heart cannot be restored. But a humbled heart, Humbled heart says, I know. I've been wrestling with this for the past year. I don't know what to do. I I hate my sin. That's a humble heart. And that kind of heart has the potential for restoration. Look what Paul tells this church to do, verses 7 and 8. What he says here. So that you should... Rather, turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The punishment, (laughs) um, the extended exclusion from the church family has been enough for this man. He's responded with a humble heart, and he desires to rejoin the congregation. You know, it's three things Paul tells them to do there. Forgive and comfort and reaffirm their love for this man. The word Paul uses for forgiveness here means to give freely. Just as God has gracious attitude toward us in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, they are to have that same gracious attitude towards this man. Then he says, comfort them. Um, it's the idea of extending help to this guy. Um, when I have ongoing 
uh, sin, habitual sin that I, I, I've been entangled in. Listen, I need someone to come alongside me to help me, to help free me, to, to, to check on me, to encourage me, to, to be there w- when I need it. And third, Paul tells them to reaffirm their love for him. This is a public um, reinstatement as a way for the church to say to this guy, hey, listen, we are still for you. We love you. Eugene Peterson put it this way. He said, muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Forgiving sin is gospel work. Forgiving sin. Restoring the sinner. Friends, that is gospel work. You and I, we have been called to. It's the family of God. Years ago, I had uh, two good friends, um, a young man and a young woman who were volunteers in a student ministry, in a youth ministry. (laughs) Because they were involved with the students, they spent a lot of time together, um, um, both with the students and then just uh, planning and putting things together. Um, they were working with the teenagers. And one thing led to another. And um, they ended up having a sexual relationship. And she ended up getting pregnant. And the church went through a uh, process, a difficult process of church discipline with this, with this couple. They ended up standing up in front of that church family and confessed their sin and the the church forgave them and in a very public setting told them how much they loved them and restored them to the fellowship. This couple ended up getting married um, and they're still married and growing. They continue to grow and walk and, and grow in their walk with God. Now, it's no, I know it's not a popular picture, but I got to tell you, it's a beautiful picture of church discipline and church restoration done well. Listen, I have to tell you, if you came here today or if you were listening online and um, you're a little messed up in your life, <laughs> can I tell you you're in great company? Um, I mean, look around you. Because you're surrounded by a community of messed up people being preached to by a messed up preacher. (laughs) Just a bunch of messed up people. And because we are the family of God and we love one another, we can say to one another, hey, listen, that's broken. And we should be able to respond, thanks, I needed that help. And be able to restore one another. God's people, see, have a responsibility to call out sin and to call back sinners. So let me give you a fourth principle I find in this passage. It's really a final warning. That if we are neglecting this forgiving and restoring in the church, Satan is lurking and will rob us. Paul adds, it seems like almost an afterthought. Do you notice this? In this passage, in verse 11, look what he says here. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. 
That word outwitted literally means to steal one's possessions. We discovered Satan's in the thievery business. <laughs> he wants to steal from you and he wants to steal from Christ's church. And listen, if we don't deal with sin, not only in our personal lives and confront sin in the church, then we allow him, we'll allow him to steal something from us. You say, well, what will he steal? Let me give you several things he might steal. He would steal our unity. Satan loves division, <laughs> dissent, disagreement. Satan will steal our purity because that's how we are distinguished, right? As the people of God, you know? We are holy. We're different. We have extraordinary norms that we're working towards. <laughs> Satan um, would love to steal our maturity. Satan doesn't want us to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and become stronger or, and more faithful to the Lord. Let me give you one more. He would steal our testimony. We'll become the church, uh, you know, where all of our neighbors around us will look at us and will say, ah, oh, that church over there, I see what's going on. They're just a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of clowns. Howard Hendricks, a former professor at Dallas Seminary, told a story about a dear brother in the ministry who went down the tubes morally. He says, um, by the grace of God, this man was brought back into fellowship, and by God's grace, he was restored to his ministry. One time when we were fellowshipping together, I said, hey, man, I, I, I want to pick your brain. I need some help. Where are we in the church failing in your judgment? He said, Howie, when I fell into sin, it was like going down in the surf for the third time. I was looking over at the shore that was filled with believers that I knew, some of whom were crying, isn't that tragic? Some of them were cursing, saying, you're supposed to know the word of God. Why did you allow that thing to happen to you? There were some who were wringing their hands, saying, ah, oh, what can we do? but there was only one who risked the surf to pull me out while I was going down for the third time. Brothers, sisters in Christ, might we be the kind of church that takes the risk to courageously and humbly confront sin and restore sinners and allow them to do a reboot by the grace of God. As a family of God, listen, we have the responsibility to call out sin and to call back sinners. Do you know why we can do this with one another? It's because of, of what Jesus did for all of us, right? The Bible tells us there's one sin in the garden, just one. But just like a, a bit of leaven, that sin spread and it contaminated the entire world. Somebody has to take the responsibility for that sin. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the end result of our sin. So Jesus, God's very son, was sent to this planet, was sent to earth 
Why? To die for my sin, to die for your sin. He came to take the responsibility for our sin. Friends, that's amazing grace. To do what? He did that to restore me, to restore you, to allow all of us to do a reboot. So that we might be able to have a relationship with the living God. And while Satan would love to rob us of that reality, he does not get to. I got to tell you today, if you are here, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, today can be a day where you are set free from your sin, be restored to a relationship with God. I want to invite you today. I want to invite you today to do just that by simply acknowledging that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and that you're putting your trust in him. And I got to tell you, if you are here and you are already a believer, you're already a Christ follower, (laughs) I want to invite you to not take the Lord's discipline lightly. If you're caught personally in sin by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, or by someone else who comes and points it out to you, then repent and return and reboot God's gracious arms are open to you. God, thank you so much for your grace. Amazing, amazing grace. You have called us to come back to return to you God you've made that way possible for each one of us God we celebrate your grace which you consistently extend to each one of us might we respond might we respond in faith in your son's precious name Amen